So tonight I'm going to talk with you about a friendly heart, about the practicing of metta and these Brahmaviharas and and uh, why it's so valuable and helpful, essential. So I'll start by saying it's not love. The word love isn't actually what's used in the translation from the teachings. Um, it's more, um, when describing metta, uh, it's a heart, what does the Buddha say? <laughs> I'll tell you when I get there. It's it's an, a heart that's not with ill will. So when we have any degree at all of ill will, resistance, fear, any anything, there is some uh, containing of the heart. And metta is a heart that's not contained by anything. It's a state of heart that's unbound, boundless, unrestricted, unrestrained in any way. It's often translated as love, loving kindness, but we have to be wary of the word love to begin with because our love in our minds most often is very complicated, often very juicy, often intense, usually attached, um, quite a complicated state. Um, and it's a thing that we think we want and that we love. We can get very uh, keen about it. Metta is way more simple and way more pure. The state of a heart that is not guarded or restrained in any way, I like to use the word uh, friendly. And what I do when I think of the word friendly is I imagine myself with a dear friend and how my heart is in my dear friend's company. And it's not restricted at all by wanting anything to be other by shrinking in any kind of annoyance or or fear by not needing to project or fix not showing off not impressing not definitely changing no agenda no anything quietly presently openly interested caring friendly it's a neutral almost thing but it's warm it's quiet. I think that's the essence of it. It's not busy doing anything. It's peaceful. The sense we have of love, the word love, we, you know, we, and we often, I'm saying this because we often get confused in practicing this, uh, these various Brahma-viharas. We can't love everybody. What we, you know, our love, the way we love, are our dear ones. We love those who are dear to us. That we're very familiar with. But we aren't expected to be loving the neighbor who we don't know or loving the difficult people or the complete strangers on the other side of the world. It's not that. But we are able to learn to not exclude or put anything between them and us. There's, in fact, learning the non-separation of community, really. We're social creatures. And so it's using this ability to belong in a society, to belong, to be with. 
That's what it's about, not the you know, often complicated and over-dramatized word love. Practicing this way, this, this state, inviting it, encouraging it, experiencing it in all its little many flavors is because we need a heart that's okay, that's quiet, that's available to be friendly, that has space and interest. And a lot of the time, that's not the state of our heart. Our heart is so much of the time not quite satisfied, being busy with scheming, guarding against possible or probable or present problems. It's very, very actively controlling and so on. And until this heart state is settled, is calm, is safe, is relaxed, is content. Our system can't become quiet. It's too busy. It's too busy rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Any old deck chairs everywhere. And until it's not busy, the whole system can't become calm And until the system calms down, it can't see clearly. And until it can see clearly, it can't see through the hoax of the ego, the sense of self. It can't see really the impact, the motivation, the effects of all that doing, and therefore become free from all of that. It's not possible. So we need firstly, I'd say, to have a heart that's calm, So when it's troubled, it needs reassuring. When it's frightened, it needs encouraging. When it's grieving, it needs to be allowed, and so on. And without it, we we actually can't proceed. And so that's why we must, this has to be a whole aspect of practicing. Um, People say things like love meaning the big wise love, even though that word, I'm cherry of that word, love is wisdom's expression. When a a being really understands, really, really fully understands the deep truths of reality, they can't but be open-hearted, be available, care. When we're confused and we believe that there's a me who has to fix and rearrange things, there isn't space. We're full, we're preoccupied, we're occupied. I had an image of um, public toilets, you know, they're either vacant or they're occupied. And when they're occupied, there's no room for anyone else in there. (laughs) And when that person isn't there, then there's room. And it's like, my heart's like a public toilet in a way. (laughs) And it's usually really full up with all of my... (laughs) But it's possible for it to actually be hugely spacious, available, and then interested, curious, empathetic, resonant, all these lovely words. 
but your mind is mostly really full up. Your mind, your heart is full, busy, planning and anticipating and all of those things. Love is wisdom's natural expression. And another phrase is its natural radiance. When there's deep, quiet understanding in the system and there's no struggle, there's this radiant expression of friendliness. It's unstoppable. It naturally is radiating. That's a beautiful image. Srinizargadat from the last century in India said, the mind makes the abyss, the heart crosses it. If there's just understanding in the head with no heart, there can be great distance and no connection. If there's connection and attachment and involvement with no wisdom, it's too close. But both together, there's the abyss and the ability to cross it. Both. He also said, when I see with love, I'm everything. When I see with wisdom, I'm nothing. Between these two, my life flows. One without the other isn't freedom, but both together, seeing really clearly and caring, they are each other. So, how we experience this is an important thing to realize. Love could be from the the most intense, juicy, warm, really, really touched, really moved by somebody or some situation, really strong, beautiful love. That could be meta. It could also be a lot of other things like attachment and desire, but say it isn't and say it's just the pure love. It could be really profoundly rich. It Meta meaning the, the, the open, clear friendliness can be really, um, really close with somebody. You don't have to love them, but you can be, they can be so dear to you you can just be, oh, I so feel you. I so appreciate you. I really get it. That kind of really, really connecting. That's matter too. It can be, I'm going down in degrees of warmth. It can be, um, you know, I, I, really, I really respect this. I really care. This is really, I totally understand it. But we might not like so much. If there's an openness, an availability, respect, understanding. It doesn't have to be flavored with liking, even particularly happiness. It's like, oh, being open to, available to. It can even be simply accepting this is how it is. This is how it is. That is a metaphor. It doesn't have to be juicy and powerful to actually have space for and to say, yeah, this is what's happening. Nothing to do with whether I like it or not. But the openness, that's meta. That's friendly, friendliness. We're being friendly, even when things aren't particularly what we like. It can even be a lesser degree of warmth, being able to be with, without any shrinking. Even the word tolerance, in its real meaning, not just put up with, oh well, with a bit of aversion and shutting down, but no aversion, no shutting down, no liking, and still being able to go, yep, this is here. That's meta. 
It's not about the degree of warmth. It's about the openness and the non-shrinking in the heart. So be, don't be looking in your practice for some great thrills. Sometimes that happens, as you know, but many times it doesn't. And people often think, am I actually doing my practice right? It doesn't feel juicy. Sometimes it's juicy, but sometimes it isn't juicy. That's not the measure of metta. So we're not looking for sentimentality. We're not looking for emotion. It's how friendly can I be? And how, if this were, if I were being friendly in this scenario, what that looked like? Sometimes it's just very quiet. You're just there and go like, wow, just, yeah, available. So because our hearts are so often tense, some kind of bound boundary, some kind of limit, some kind of bond, we, to be able to practice metta, have many ways. We can practice formally, which I'll speak about in a few minutes, but initially we can practice informally by inviting in all kinds of skillful ways the heart to relax a little so it can be more open. Soothing it or reassuring it or cheering it up. And there's all kinds of ways that we can do this and have done this and do do this often informally. So, of course I like the word encourage, because that comes from the word cur, which is the heart. It's what the C-O-U-R part of encourage is. And so to bring the heart, to be, uh, bring your heart to a situation, to in- involve yourself with caring about a situation. So one of the first ways, and this, this is not in any order of preference, but all these things we, we do and have access to, but for some reason I wanted to start with gratitude, because I often do, to count blessings. It's so easy for us, because the heart so tends to go to anxiety or worry or insufficiency or um, you know, complaining and so on, to alternate that with counting blessings. It's such, such a direct alternative to that habit. So it's just a thought, but we take so much for granted. And we very often say, oh no, why is it like this today? When we're complaining or we're not okay with something. How often do we say, how come I even got a life? We don't say, how come I've got this amazing six sense doors and this... We, we go, oh, why is it aching again today? You know? We zero in on the limit. We don't zero in, in on what so much that we have. We take it for granted and just notice when it's not perfect. In everything, but in our own life we do, our very life. Just to have had a human birth. To live here. To have the friends we have. I mean, I could go on, I won't go on, but the thing about when we are grateful, various things happen. 
if you can actually have some moment of saying thank you, counting some of your blessings, notice what happens to this heart of yours. When we can be grateful for a little thing, a piece of chocolate, if somebody gave it to you, becomes a gift. Food, when we really are grateful for the food, we say grace to be grateful for the food, suddenly we have a feast instead of a meal. When we are actually open and interested in somebody, we have a friend instead of a casual meeting. It's by being grateful we can open and find riches where they, we didn't know that they were there. When we're grateful for our house, it becomes our home. When we feel isolated and separated and then we're grateful, we suddenly feel that we belong. When we're afraid and we switch and choose to be grateful, we're less afraid, we're less alienated. It's extraordinary what you can observe happening by just this simple act of being thankful for a few minutes, a few moments. One of the things about being grateful is um, it makes us stronger. It's, it's reassuring and we then feel more, we have more heart, we have more courage. Then we can face what's difficult that we couldn't have faced when we were in our sh- more shrunken state, more closed off, afraid or complaining. When something difficult comes, we, don't, we can't handle it. The expanding, the opening, is a strengthening. We're more powerful when we're grateful than when we're afraid. We're more stable when we're more grateful, and so on. When we are um, feeling more strength, we can become more calm. If If we're insecure, we're unstable. If we're more strong, feeling confident, we can relax. All these things all lead from one to another, all these states. You can see being grateful itself is a beautiful thing. It makes us feel happy. But it does a lot more than that. It shifts lots of other states then that would subsequently go another way. And we know, of course, in our world that if we feel weakened or if we feel... Um, alienated, we're much more likely to be harmful. We're much more likely to be spiteful. Violence comes from alienation, not from connection. If we go from feeling isolated and then we're grateful and then we realize we do have friends, we're now connected, we're not going to be so harmful. It's skillful. It helps. It doesn't just feel good. The power of it is, is significant. So that's one thing we can do. The main thing, of course, that comes as direct result of, of tuning into what we're grateful for, counting blessings, is we discover a sense of contentment, as the, the obvious one. And then when the system is content, it doesn't have tanha, the cause of the first noble truth. The Im- instant remedial for wanting something else is to be grateful for what is. 
and then that stress of uh, being unsatisfied is is immediately mitigated. That alone. But all these other things are impacts of just this one practicing or one exercise or one way of thinking, reflection, way of thinking. Very impactful. There are many ways to, the Buddha called it, gladden the heart. The classic way is to take refuge. If that for you is a way that cheers you up, gives you heart, take heart. Take heart, dear one. It's not exactly a term that's used often, but it's a beautiful term. Does it give you some heart to, to think that the mind is trainable and can become free from its neurosis? Isn't that the most amazing thing? And what is actually happening, seeing clearly what's going on, is what allows this freeing to happen? That we would never have thought about if we hadn't heard about the Dharma? If this is cheerful, do it. (laughs) Because it's like, oh, it's something to trust. That's the point of the refuge. Something to trust, to relax, to soften, soothe, calm the mind and heart. Another thing the Buddha recommended is um, reflecting on your own merit, the translation is used, on your own goodness, on your own decency, on your own acts of kindness and generosity and the good things that you do and that you are. Sometimes at night, at the end of the last sitting, I'll remind you to give yourselves a pat on the back and appreciate yourselves for doing this work, for wanting to in the first place and then making it happen in the second and then still being here. You're all still here, you know. It's, it's tremendous. Appreciating that. Appreciating your good conscience. What really brought you here? The most beautiful part of yourself brings you here. The part that really, really has the highest values. That deeply wants to understand and be kind. The most beautiful things. Appreciating your own qualities. Then there's accepting what is. We all know the practice of simply accepting. First thing I talked about all those many, many days ago, way back there. Which also includes the practice of forgiving. The understanding practice of like, yeah, this is how it was. Somewhere somebody said, it's thanks to those who hold forgiving in high regard that we have not plunged into total barbarism out of retaliation. There's a story I tell from time to time um, of, it's not a story, it's a a thing I saw, a documentary I watched on television many years ago now. Uh, And a a Canadian woman made a documentary about children uh, suffering from the effects of war. And, uh, and this was in Bosnia. And she went into various camps and was interviewing children who were living in re- this state of refugees in tent cities and things. And uh, just was just interviewing all different kinds of children. And they would, this is where we live, this is where the bunk I have to sleep in, this is where we cook now, and so on. And um, the one I remember, the, I remember bits and pieces of it, but the one scene that I remember was the, the ending of this documentary. And she had a few times spoken with this young man. And he was, well, he was a kid. He was probably, I'd guess, 12, maybe 13. 
just beginning to grow up, you know, but a boy. He had lost his four brothers. And they were now living in this tent city. And it was, there were, you know, sort of like rows like this was, as it were, streets, but just people and feet. And they were, it was all muddy and lots of wet and flood. And in the middle of a crossroads is where the, the uh, well pump was for, for water. And they would all have to be there. And he was so, he was so sad and he was so lovely and he was, you know, this sort of despairing, hopeless, but young and growing up. So there was the kind of vitality of his age and then the depression of the situation and frustration and so on. And so he had, you know, all the children had various things to say. And she ends with him and she said, do you think of the future? She said, and he said, oh, yes. And she said, what do you think? When you think of your future, what do you think? And he had this kind of, this grin came on his face, kind of. He talked about his loss and his brothers and he teared up he was like a little kid in one way but he got this look on his face and he said sort of swallowing his tears revenge and you could see you know this is this is how violence is born you know he's he was he didn't know what else to do he's stuck with his pain and he's becoming a young man and his energy is growing and what else can he think of and you totally understand how it happens when there isn't the kind of consciousness that we know we're growing here. It's totally understandable. We do it all in our own little ways. And it doesn't help, as we know. And you think, oh, the pain that he's going to go forward into this beautiful young soul, you know, who's harmed, and that's what he thinks will provide some help you know hmm. For, forgiving understanding giving there's forgiving then there's giving any kind of giving has anybody given anything on this retreat to anybody isn't it fun little tiny things because often we don't get we aren't, don't have access to big things but there's lots of little things that get given such a beautiful thing and when there's giving there's got to be receiving for it to work so there's also receiving isn't that fun (laughs) it's a lovely thing isn't it it's just like oh it it shifts that alienated or tied or tired one giving and receiving and I have to tell you this this is a oddest thing to share but when I think of giving and receiving I think of had this image somebody sent me once because I was a midwife um, they sent me a, a a clip, you know, is a YouTube clip of an elephant giving birth in captivity. And so this young elephant gives birth. And so here's the scene of this little baby elephant coming out of her. And she's on a cement floor. And there's no, you know, nothing. that this. And her keeper is watching and keeping out of the way. And this little baby goes floosh with this huge flood of water. It's just wet. And it just lies there. And kind of, you know, I'm definitely counting the seconds from my, you know, experience. And she, she picks up her big back leg and she goes whop and she just whops this thing and it sort of spins a little bit but nothing happens. <laughs> then she does it with her other leg, whoom, and then nothing happens. You know, and she's snuffling around with her trunk. And then she puts her trunk, this is the most adorable thing, she puts her trunk down, here's her trunk, here's a baby lying here, and she wraps her trunk around the baby's trunk so that they're entwined. And then she goes, and lifts it up shakes its head a little bit and then it you know shakes its head and breathes and eventually it's standing up and all is well 
I think of the giving and the receiving of that. That's, that's a big gift. But I think of them as intertwined, you know, like you, you can't receive and you have to have the receiving in order for the giving to work. That whole thing is that it, it expands us beyond our separation right away. Of course, all the metta, all the wishes of well, all those blessings, all the way we wish, all those kind words and things that we do and say, and all the whole industry of Hallmark cards and all of that. Fantastic. So helpful. Beautiful. Even now, email, you know, great gratitude email clubs, and there's all kinds of lovely ways of using words. Um, Going to nature. We all know this one. Here's a poem. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound for fear of what my life or my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the woodruff rests in his beauty and the wild heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. How many of you have been resting in the grace of the world this month and it frees your heart? That was Wendell Berry, if you didn't know. It's such a beautiful poem. Then there's things like, this is very first. Live your life carefully. Live your life respectfully. Don't break vows and laws and trust. When we attend to our sila, we will then already have a more peaceful heart. When we don't, when we cheat, when we deceive, when we betray, when we break our word, this heart can't relax. It's, oh, it's not good and bad, but it shrinks a little with those things because, in fact, we are good and we do know that that's not okay. And then it's going to make us quiver. If we can attend to living carefully, honoring, it, it feel already the heart is more peaceful. The Buddha called this the bliss of blamelessness and you've all heard of this beautiful teaching. To be able to live with yourself peacefully. We have to be careful. It makes such a difference. You know this, you've already been sitting here with your hearts. So, these are just some of the many ways that the mind and heart are soothed, relaxed, cheered, comforted, reassured, befriended. And you all know all of them, and I'm sure you've all been doing all of these things all day long in all kinds of ways. And they all do the same thing of expand the heart from its contracted 
self-concerned and isolated self. They strengthen and open us. Let me talk about our formal practice of metta a little bit. This tradition that's come down from the days of the Buddha and the chant that we've been chanting at night in these last week or so. So we use phrases and we use muses, as I like to call them, categories. I don't really, I can't think of people as categories. I think of people at least as muses. And uh, and the different uh, moving through these different kinds of people and then expanding out the different directions as you have been doing. And then all these progressive Brahma-viharas, such beautiful practices. It's so nice to have a retreat long enough that you can actually explore them and get to understand them because there's so much there. It's hard to do in a shorter retreat. So there are some direct benefits that we know. The very minimal, if you are practicing by repeating meta phrases for somebody. You're not doing anything else. You're not worrying. You're not judging. You're not off, you know, three or four days hence. You're, you're here. Your heart is engaged in a wholesome activity. It's a protection from anything worse. That alone is a good thing. then the the actual intentions are these beautiful beautiful states that you're even just thinking about and hopefully sometimes feeling hopefully there's a resonance of those words safe or calm or whatever you're they're beautiful things to resonate on beautiful ways to incline the mind as we use that phrase so often it's a choice to reflect on and experience those kind of things instead of the worrying ones or the critical ones or the insufficient ones, the whining. Then, of course, all of this you know, by radiating kindness to whomever your muse might be, you're that much bigger. It helps us move from my self-concern to at least one other person. We're concerned a little more with them than then we are with ourselves. That is itself a dramatic shift from all those negative states which pull us into me and all that preoccupation, being full of your own stuff. Beautiful. It's a relief. Even if it's low-key and not hugely warm and juicy, that's going on. Your occupation isn't with your concern then. And of course, another thing that happens when we are able to sustain any kind of practice, including that practice, a lot of you know, the mind can get very, very collected, can become very gathered and concentrated. Adding these together, that's pretty profound. So the formal practice is doing all these many things all at once, taking you out of yourself, collecting you, nourishing you beautifully, protecting you from neurosis. 
but there are all four of them. There's all these four. So I want to talk a little bit about how the four interact with each other and interrelate and how actually they need each other. And I mentioned this a little bit when I talked about the beginning of equanimity yesterday because equanimity is required to make the others be wholesome and expansive. It's easy, relatively, to be loving to those you love, you know, the dear ones. That's where we begin, because it's relatively easy, as long as they're not too complicated in our lives. But it's not so easy to befriend those people we don't know. That takes a bit of practice, as you know. Or um, it's easy to, um, to be joyful when the dear ones you, you appreciate are happy. But if it's somebody you don't like and they're happy, that's not so easy. You know, you, you don't want them to be happy so much. Or if it's, uh, if it's somebody who you don't like so much, and, but they're suffering, it's easier to care about them than if they're happy. If they're an unpleasant person having a great time, that's really challenging for you. No, it's because a whole complicated thing. What we're wanting to be learning in that practice isn't just to be able to do it, but to have it as a well-honed skill that we can rely on at any time in any situation. It has to be a trustworthy, accessible refuge. So we need to practice in the kind of situations which it doesn't come so easily to. That's why we do all of these different, using all these different muses in different situations. Because it wouldn't come so naturally if we're just letting ourselves be our little spontaneous selves. Can we develop this friendliness regardless of whatever the circumstance, whoever the person, whatever's going on, whether we like it or them or not? That's the invitation. It's a big invitation. And the thing that we remember about all this is it's not happiness and unhappiness, ours and everybody's, ultimately is not dependent on circumstance. If it's dependent on circumstance, it's completely unreliable. Real happiness depends on how skillfully we can meet what happens. And so what we're doing in our wishes isn't just wishing somebody to be happy. We're wishing that they are able to be happy in whatever circumstance. In other words, not to depend on the ups and downs of their life. So our wish is a bigger wish than we may have thought. So let's take it for ourselves. May I be happy and peaceful? Well, it isn't just like, that would be nice. Let's be happy and peaceful. It's like, how do I be happy and peaceful? I do that by not being reactive, by being grounded, by seeing clearly, by steadying my gaze, by calming my system, by reassuring my heart, by being honest and gutsy and persistent and patient. That's how I be happy. So I'm not wishing myself because it'd be groovy to be happy, but actually I'm wishing myself skill. I'm wishing myself wisdom. I'm wishing myself that I can learn these skills so they may serve my freedom. That's what I'm wishing. And if I'm wishing somebody to not struggle, of course we don't want people to be sick and in pain and all these things which will happen, but we really are wishing that they not be ignorant, 
and that their confusion not cause them distress and that the young men who are in those camps of despair not go for revenge. That's what we're wishing. We're wishing for skill and for wisdom and for calm. May the Dharma serve you well. That's the wish. You know, may we really be able to be with what's happening and respond appropriately and not react inappropriately and get ourselves into trouble and everyone else and cause more pain in this already painful world. It's not just states of, oh yeah, may I have chocolate after supper and then I'll be happy. It's, this is a way bigger deal here. And we remember that deep, deep, deep inside everyone, the deepest wish we all have is for peace. We, everything we do, every single crazy thing we do is because we somehow believe that will help us have a little more peace. We all want this. Whatever ways we go, may go about it, that's what we're wanting. And all the millions of things we do, that's what we're looking for. It's the result from the, uh, the achievement, whatever it is. That same result we're all wanting, a state of ease and well-being. We assume that. That's underneath all the things we do. But of course this wish gets completely sabotaged because we put on top of it what we think will actually serve it. And those things are almost always wrong things. So to wish somebody well, or wish even ourselves well, usually isn't the way we think. It's about unlearning our mistakes, really seeing clearly, really understanding. That's the only way it will be effective. And so we have to train with that. It's not just happiness. It's the facility to allow happiness to arise. The facility to remove what's in the way of happiness. the ability to see what's in the way of your happiness. The ability to see what caused what's in the way of your happiness. The ability to see the effect of what you've done so that you really understand that it doesn't cause happiness but it causes longing or regret or whatever. Skillful behavior. So be careful when you wish somebody to be happy. May your happiness continue and never end. That it's not just may you be a Pollyanna for the rest of your life. You know, a, a drifting in unconscious bliss, some spiritual bypass. That's not useful. Hmm. We need, through all of these wishes, we need the wisdom of equanimity because, of course, what we may wish for probably isn't going to happen like that because we are not, we're not able to make it happen the way we want. We wish knowing all kinds of things are going to arise. The unfolding is going to be way beyond our ability to influence. We wish anyway because we care with no attachment as long as there's equanimity to realize it's not about my wish. It's 
so we can let go to what is happening. Care and let go to what really happens. That's why we need the equanimity. Mm. There's a Nayaponikathera, a teacher from Sri Lanka in the last century, wrote some um, beautiful words about how these different Brahmaviharas support each other. And I just love the language he uses, so I'm going to quote him for some of these pieces. Uh, he says, for instance, um, if any one of these Brahmaviharas do not have the others in mind, if we'll, and we aren't in touch with all the aspects, they will deteriorate into their own characteristic defects. And so um, the characteristic defect of metta is we want. We love to love and we want it. So it deteriorates into wanting. Compassion can deteriorate into, as we know, the near enemy. It's like, oh, this is so awful. Immediately up comes negativity. Joy can deteriorate into this exuberance and this excitement and getting off on it. And um, upeka can deteriorate into such a, it can become so cool that it detaches itself. And so we need to keep them all in balance to prevent this from happening. And then he describes them in more detail beautifully. Metta, just love, without the big view and without keeping all of these in mind can become sentimental goodness of a weak and unreliable nature. That's not true metta. It's just, you know, being friendly and, and happy, but it's not got any strength to it. When we um, are practicing kindness and even joy, we, if we remember, keep in mind that things go up and they go down, and there can be suffering as well as joy, then he says, um, metta and karuna, they stay humble and they open to a wider experience of life. Because if there's just metta and just joy, which we might think that's all we want, we don't want, we don't want to bother with the other two, we just want that, um, they, are, they can get a little too self-satisfied. But if they remember that they are only possible some of the time, and some of the time compassion is necessary, they stay from being so inflated. I think it's an interesting reflection. Sobers them and deepens them keep a perspective there. When we remember karuna with uh, sympathetic joy and, and kindness also, it keeps them from turning into states of self-satisfied complacency within a jealously guarded petty happiness. It's beautifully put. Um, when there is um, karuna, suffering, we need to remember mudita, we need to remember joy. That this isn't how it is. It isn't the totality of everything. There's also beautiful moments and humor and lightness and playfulness. This isn't the solid difficulty. Otherwise, we can get stuck in overwhelm. We can get into melancholic brooding. Anybody had any melancholic brooding? <laughs> and futile sentimentality. Right? It's so easy for that to happen. But if you keep the perspective that this isn't the whole deal here, it's not just awful, it's going kind to of change then it, we don't get so awash with our emotions. If we do do any of those things, when we become flooded, overwhelmed, melancholic brooding, futile sentimentality, we are weakened and the strength of our mind and heart is unreliable. 
So you know that happens. We all know what that's like when we, when we fall too far into the difficulty. Upeka, equanimity, guards both metta and karuna, the friendliness and the, and the compassion, from going astray in labyrinths of uncontrolled emotion. Same thing. We can get really emotional. That's not actually freedom. Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. But in its perfection and unshakable nature, it's not dull, heartless, frigid. Its unshakable nature is not the immovability of a dead, cold stone, but the manifestation of the highest strength. Vanished are the whirls of emotion and the meanderings of the intellect. Because there's joy, there's there's also there's compassion, there's also love and tenderness. So it doesn't just become completely sort of theoretical and abstract, where we would get, you know, lost. Beautiful. Love, compassion, and sympathetic joy, all three, continue to emanate from the mind and heart, acting upon the world, but being guarded by equanimity, they cling nowhere and they return unweakened and unsullied. They don't get sticky and caught up in the story and the detail. They stay fluid and spacious because of equanimity. We stay expanded and stable. Hmm. So you see, what we're doing is using the mind to help the mind. Now these are fabrications of mind. These attempts to think of well-being and to think of forgiveness and to be grateful, we're making up states of mind with the mind. We're creating something. But we already create something. The mind's always fabricating, unless it's really, really quiet and really deep, still states of meditation, and we get some relief from it. So, but we can use this ability of fabricating to fabricate useful things. Things, states of mind, reflections, which will serve our awakening. This is skillful. We're not just trying to stop it all. We're trying to help ourselves. We're not making problems or trying to fix. We're trying to become free from confusion. And if the mind being soothed, the heart being reassured, relaxed, can allow us to see more clearly, it's skillful. All these ways are skillful, formally and informally. So we get to choose with this mind how to reflect, what thoughts to entertain, what thoughts are useful, what thoughts are useless, what thoughts are downright dangerous. We can look for the good. Even in a situation that's mostly not good, we can still choose the good and pay attention to that. There's always good somewhere. Little pieces, even if they're small. Let's appreciate them. Let's not let the negative ones be so overwhelming. We get to choose. As the mind and the heart get trained, we can choose how to be their owner. That is becoming liberated. It's when it's choosing us and it's deciding how to think and what to think. We're totally 
caught. Hmm. It's beautiful, I think, to use these practices because they're so it's natural for us. I said already, we're social. I don't think I'm the only one in this room who loves flocks. Flock mentality. That incredible phenomenon. Wouldn't you love to be able to do what sandpipers do, you know, like 50 of them all at once on a beach? <laughs> the way they are one or, you know, shoals of fish who can be so attuned. Isn't that the most delightful thing? We like that because we have that sensibility to a degree, not to that degree. But we know that sense of resonance and sensitivity and responsiveness is, is a beautiful thing that we have. We are not isolated beings just developing our own freedom. We belong. And so we use these practices, the whole idea of opening and connecting the heart because they're so natural for us. We use them as a way to help free us from the neurosis. All the skills we learn are skills. This too. Very beautiful skill. Very effective. Very nourishing. So I think I'd just like to end with inviting you to no, I didn't say, I didn't talk about the suitor. i got this suitor right here that we've been singing at night. Just a couple of things I want to say about it. In through this whole suitor, there's reference to living carefully, sila. Not doing anything that the wise would later repro- reprove. That doesn't mean someone's out there watching. It's like your own wise would later reprove. So you'd, you don't have to shrink from yourself peaceful and calm and wise and skillful. Not just peaceful and calm, but wise and skillful. That's what we wish. Twice in this, the only thing that comes twice in this sutta is may all beings be at ease. That's twice. That's the real, that's the heart of the wish. And then of course it's all, we know that one, it's all, muses all beings in every state, near and far, but that it isn't just may they be happy, it's may they not do the things that will cause them unhappiness. Don't deceive each other. Let's not despise anyone for anything. Let's not judge. Let's not be angry or wish any harm. It's a restraining as well as a may you be at ease, because it's understood. When we restrain the neurotic behavior, happiness is possible. And then, of course, there's all this expansiveness about the whole sutta radiating in all these different directions. So beautiful. And then the last section, the second to last section, talks about sustaining it. And this is what we learn in retreat and can do in retreat when we're uninterrupted in our silence, is to sustain. Not just to access these states, beautiful and helpful, but then to sustain that, to abide in them abiding, a divine abiding, to settle down so in it that you're like at home, to feel that sense of 
gratitude or that sense of expansiveness or whatever it is for you, the language of your heart, the state of your heart, the climate of your heart, heart speak. Learn it and then become so familiar with it that you're abiding, knowing how it is. And sometimes it'll be more tender and sometimes it'll be more anxious. It's how it is. It's how we are. But learn that and abide in that familiarity. That's the invitation. Profoundly essential in our freedom. So I just would end with inviting you to love this practice Love this practice of friendliness. So we do it because it feels so full and rich and soothing and kind. And to keep your loyalty to that, keep remembering not just that it is beautiful, but that it is healing and that this is our way to become free so that you keep attending to this. That's my request, my invitation. Thank you. Thank you for your attention.